Hello everyone. Welcome to my presentation. Thanks to Sangam Talks for inviting me for this talk. The topic is uh, Chola Legacy of Philippines. As uh, Rahul ji mentioned, my name is Saran Shanmugam. I'm a traveler with a passion for cultures and history. I explored the Indic cultures in foreign countries. Almost um, in my experience, almost all of the Southeast Asian countries retain their Indic legacy in some form or another. Many might think that the country which is farthest away from India in terms of its Indian connection is the Philippines. One, it's also um, uh, due to the distance as well. When compared to Indonesia or Malaysia, uh, Philippines is farther away from India. But uh, second one is predominantly the, the Catholic population um, uh, the Philippines has one of the, uh, the Christian populations, largest Christian populations in the world. But they would not know of a legacy, the two of the glorious Chola dynasty of South India, connecting Philippines to India. But uh, before I go into the topic regarding the Cholas in Philippines, I just want to provide you with a brief background about the Cholas themselves, the dynasty, the Chola dynasty of India. They are the longest ruling dynasties in the, in the world, one of the longest ruling dynasties. If you take into consideration the lineage in Philippines, arguably they might be the longest in the world. The first mention of them was in the third century before common era in the rock edict 13 of Ashoka. So uh, two of the famous early Cholas, which I want to mention here is Karigala Chola. He lived in the first common era, first century common era. That's a statue from um, Kanchi, from a temple in Kanchi. The second one worth mentioning and many would not know about him is Kochanga Chola. He lived in the second century common era. He built 70 plus temples, including the Jambukeshwara temple shown here. Jambukeshwara temple is near Trichirapalli. If you have a chance to visit Trichy in Tamil Nadu, um, I suggest um, visiting the particular temple. It is few kilometers away from the Sri Rangam temple. Kochanga Chola today is recognized as one of the 63 Nyanmars. Nyanmars are the Saivet saints of Tamil Nadu. There are like 12 Alvars and 12 um, Nyanmars who revived the Hinduism around the period from the 2nd to the 7th century, 8th century in Tamil Nadu. Then there was a period, a brief period from the third century till 848 common era, the period of interregnum for the Cholas, even for other, other Tamil dynasties like the Pandyas and the Cheras. The Kalapiras are the Kalapirayas, uh, as you call it in Tamil, along with Pallavas, they were dominating the political uh, scenario in Tamil Nadu. But in 848, the glorious period of the Cholas started. That period is called the Imperial Chola period. That is when we had two popular, two famous emperors, 
that is the Rajaraja Shola. He built the first massive Navy armada in the Indian history until the independence. Maybe Sivaji, uh, he built a Navy later on. But uh, if you look at uh, the history of the Indian Navy before 1947, Rajendra Shola and his son Rajendra Shola and uh, uh, his grandson, Rajendra Shola's gra grandson, Klothunga, they all commanded a massive Navy naval fleet flying the Bay of Bengal and other parts of the Indian Ocean. Rajaraja Shola also built the famous temple called Big Temple or Peruvadaya Temple uh, or uh, it's called the Brigadeshwara Temple. If you see the background here, that is the Big Temple uh, in the presentation here. So this is a background, yeah, this is one. His son Rajendra Shola, he leveraged his father's navy to conquer territories in 14, corresponding to 14 modern countries. I'll be talking about his conquest in the next three slides because that has a direct bearing on the history of the Philippines. And also he built a new capital called Gangaikunda Cholaburam near Tanjur. Tanjur used to be the old capital for the imperial Cholas before um, Gangaikunda Cholaburam was built. So if you look at the Rajendra Chola conquest, those are the territories what he um, either uh, conquered or he was ruling. So um, if you look at it year by year, in 1017, he ascended the throne in 1014. He was made the heir in 1012. He ascended the throne in 1014, common era. In 1017, he started his conquest. So uh, the first conquest was the Sri Lanka. He conquered the ancient kingdom of Sri Lanka and set up a new capital called Polanarua. In the same year, he undertook the first invasion of the Sri Vijaya kingdom. Um, the Keda or the Kedaram in modern day Malaysia was the second capital of Sri Vijaya kingdom of Sumatra. Before that, the Sri Vijaya kingdom was in friendly terms with the Cholas. They built the Sudamani Viharam or Vihara, a Buddhist monastery in Nagapatnam in Tamil Nadu. Nagapatnam is one of the major ports for the Cholas. Sudamani Viharam was constructed in 1006, common era, during the period of Rajaraja Shola by a Sri Vijayan king, king called Sri Vijaya Mara Vijayatunga Varman. So Rajaraja Shola provided the support to the monastery by granting a revenue of, of a, a village uh, to be used by the monastery. This Chudamani Viharam is covered extensively in the Tamil novel of Ponyan Selvan, written by Kalki Krishnamurti. It talks about the story of Rajaraja Shola before he became the emperor. It's a beautiful novel if you uh, get a chance to read. It's a research-based. Kalki did research for five years, and I suggest you, um, there is an English version of it, um, reading that. And then in 1018, he um, defeated the Kerala and subjugated the ports. The Kerala was ruled by the Cheras at the time, so uh, uh, he defeated the, the Cheras, 
as well as the Pandyas in the South Tamil Nadu. In the same year, he defeated the Western Chalukyas. Western Chalukyas were always a threat since the Pallava days, but he failed to cross the Tungabhadra River after defeating them. He didn't pursue them. It came to um, uh, affect the Cholas later on down the road after Rajendra Chola's period. In 1018, he conquered Maldives. And then in 1022-23, he moved up south, to, uh, moved up north to conquer Kalinga, which corresponds to the modern-day um, Odisha, and also the Palas, and three other smaller kingdoms in the Bengal. Because he crossed the Ganges in the Bengal, once he came back, he built the temple called Gangai Kunda Cholaburam near the Tanjore. Gangai Kunda Chola means one who conquered Ganges. So in, and then in 1025, he undertook a massive second expedition against Sri Vijaya kingdom. The Sri Vijayans were expecting Cholas to sail to Lamuri. Lamuri in Asse, this part here. Uh, or they were expecting uh, the, the Chola Navy to sail into Kedah in the Malai, the modern, the, the modern Malaysia, and cross into the Strait of Malacca to attack the capital Palampang. At the time, the seasonal winds and the current, currents of the sea dictated uh, how the routes taken by the navies in the Bay of Bengal. So that's why they were guarding that Strait of Palaka, the Lamuri in Asse, um, and um, Kedah. But what the Cholas did, they sailed out of Nagapatnam and a couple of other ports, like Kadlur. Kad but Nagapatnam is the primary port for them. They sailed out of uh, Nagapatnam. So uh, they sailed into Barus, Barus on the western side of the Sumatra. This is, uh, this is uh, the Barus. The reason being, there were some Tamil, Tamil merchant guilds who were located in Barus. So once they crossed into Barus, they had the chance to replenish their whole um, uh, supplies. And then they sailed through the Strait of Sundas. The Strait of Sunda separates the Java and the Subatra here, if you look at it, and attacked Palampang. And then once they conquered Palampang, they attacked different ports, like uh, places like Jampai, Temasek. Temasek corresponds to the modern Singapore. That's the territory. Kedah, Panna, even Lamuri. So in, in summary, they have conquered 14 important flourishing ports. They had raided or conquered 14 uh, ports in Southeast Asia. It sent a shockwave to the countries that none of them sent the envoy to the regional uh, superpower at the time, Chinese. They never sent an envoy to the Chinese court for the next three years till 1028. Such was a fear instilled by the Cholas. So Chinese in 1028, they complained that the port of Canton near uh, uh, the, it's in south near Guangdong, 
they did not receive a merchant ship from any of these countries. After Rajendra Chola's period, Cholas attacked Sri Vijaya Kingdom one more time in 1067 BC, uh, Common Era, that is uh, like um, around like uh, 52 years or uh, 42 years later. Under by this time, it was done by the prince Kulothunga. Kulothunga became the emperor in 1070. But later on, Sri Vijaya Kingdom established a friendly relationship with Cholas. So what? Um, so again, they started the support for the Chudamani Viharam Nagapatinam, and uh, Kulothunga Chola restarted what was done by his uh, great grandfather Rajaraj Chola. The grant itself, the practice of the grant itself started in 1005 by Rajaraj Chola, but discontinued later under Rajendra Chola. Kulothunga is another uh, great emperor. He ruled for 52 years in total till 1122. Because of the friendly relationships with the Sri Vijaya kingdom and other kingdoms in that region, and also because of the naval capabilities, the sea of the sea, the Bay of Bengal became the Cholas Lake. It became the backyard of the Cholas. So what happened was because of this, many Chola princes married the Sri Vijayan royals and settled in Sumatra. After Kulotunga's period, the Cholas weakened slowly due to the pressures from the Pandyas from the south. The Pandyas under Jathavarman Sundra Pandyan defeated the last king Rajendra Chola uh, III, who ruled till 1279 from Gangekonda Cholaburam in obscurity. History is lost after that, as there were no inscriptions of the Cholas of India. They all became local chieftains under Pandyas and later on under the Vijayanagara kingdom. It uh, heralded the sunset of the glorious India, Cholas of India. But the Chola legacy did not end there. The region of Indonesia was ruled by the Majapahit Empire, which had succeeded a few decades later. Uh, they, they succeeded Sri Vijaya Kingdom and other smaller kingdoms which ruled Sri Vijaya, after Sri Vijaya. The history of Majapahit Empire is another glorious chapter which Indians need to know. Today, the Hinduism is surviving in parts of Java, like uh, the area around uh, Mount Bromo. You have like 300,000 Tengaris who practice Hinduism living there. And also the Balinese all owe, their, owe it to the Majapakit Empire for their Hindu, Hindu culture today in Indonesia. They rule the region corresponding to modern Indonesia, Singapore, and Malaysia. But um, I, uh, I, will, I will not digress from the topic at hand. In the early years of 1400, the history of the Cholas of Philippines began. There are four periods I'm going to cover today because important events happened during that uh, four, period, uh, four periods. One, the early 1400s. The second is the year 1521. The third one is the year 1565. And the fourth one is the 1621 to 62, uh, 1622, the two years. Those are the four periods what I'm going to talk about. 
as part of the Cholas of Philippines history. In the early 1400s, the exact dates not known. I tried to uh, look into different sources. I couldn't find, uh, find it. A Chola half prince called Sri Lume was sent ahead of the expeditionary forces from Sumatra to set up the camp, uh, base camp in Cebu. Cebu's here are Sugbu. I'll be using Sugbu and Cebu interchangeably. The Cebu is in the modern-day Visayas region of Philippines. The Cebu Island has the Cebu city today. Sri Lume was a half Tamil, half Malay prince. But instead of setting up the base camp the expedition, for the expeditionary forces of the Majapahit Empire, Sri Lume declared independence most likely due to the turbulent situation prevalent back home in Sumatra. So he declared independence and he established what is called the Rajanate of Subu or Sigbo. Uh, uh, this is the island of Cebu today. And then he established a capital called Singapala. So Singapala corresponds to the modern day Cebu city. So if you look at the Visayas region, you have the Cebu, you have the Bohol uh, island next to uh, Cebu, because I'm going to talk about all those islands in the next uh, uh, few slides. Then you have Mindanao in the south, populated by the Moros people. And then you have the Butuan, which has a direct bearing on the lineage of Philippines, uh, the Chola lineage of Philippines. You have Limassol Island and Leyte. So these are the different islands I'll be talking about in the next few slides. So Sri Lume or Raja Mura Lumaya had four sons, Sri Alho, Sri Bantung, Sri Parang, and Sri Ukob. As a Raja, Lume was known to be strict, ruthless and brave, but he was also a fair and just ruler and as no slaves escaped from him. He assigned his officials to teach the natives to read and write the pre-colonial script called Bebayin. Bebayin script traces its origins from Brahmi script, if you look up uh, uh, the documentation. Brahmi script, then you have the Tamil Brahmi script, then you have a couple of other scripts, and then you have the Bebayin as a descendant. During this time, he was facing the constant attacks from the Moros pirates from the Mindanao here, this region. The Moros pirates called Megalos. Megalos means destroyers of peace. They often invaded the island of Cebu to loot and hunt for the slaves. Each time these raiders appeared, Lumaya would command his followers to burn the whole town in a scorched earth policy in order to drive the invaders away empty-handed. The Rajanate of Subu continued to fight on for several years against the slave traders from Mindanao. Eventually, Lumaya was killed in, uh, in one of the battles against the Megalos. 
After his death, Sri Bantung, one of his sons, ruled the Rajanates of Sibo. His two other brothers, Sri Ukob, ruled the north of uh, uh, Rajanate of Cebu, which is the northern part of Cebu Island. The Rajanate of Cebu was effectively around the Singapala in the, in the central Cebu Island. Sri Alho ruled over the southern part of Cebu. Uh, the fourth son, Sri Parang, did not get a territory due to his infirmity. Maybe it is a mental or physical um, um, we don't know. But his descendant got to rule the Rajanate of Cebu later. Sri Bantung succeeded Sri Lume, uh, but he later died due to an epidemic which was prevalent then. So instead of Sri Parang, the brother to Sri Bantung, the throne passed on to the son of Sri Bantung. The son's name was Raja Humabon, because maybe Jay is silent. Uh, the Filipinos call him as Raha, Raha Humabon, J silent in Spanish. He was reigning around that 1521 period when the important history of Philippines happened. The previous years saw a dispute between a local chieftain in the island of Mangateng. So um, Mangateng, this island next to Cebu, it's called the Macton Island today. The airport, if you want to fly to Cebu, you fly into the international airport in Macton, and there is a bridge connecting the Cebu Island and Macton Island. The Mangaton is the old name for Macton. The chief name uh, was the chieftain who was ruling that Mangaton Island was uh, Datu Lapu Lapu. Datu is a term used for chieftains in those regions. It's a Malay term. Uh, it, it, is, um, it meant chieftains. Lapu Lapu had arrived from Borneo in the modern day Malaysia and sought a place to settle with his followers. Hyoborn provided the island of Mangatan, which he developed. Lapu Lapu developed it. But he saw that the piracy was lucrative. He started attacking the foreign merchant ships trading with Singapala. He also converted to Islam. This made the situation worse for the Hindu Humabon, who was bidding his time. That is when Ferdinand Magellan, with his conquistadors, or the Spanish conquerors, showed up in the horizon. Today, Magellan is recognized as the first person to circumnavigate the world. Around before he came, around uh, the period 1521, a foreign merchant brought in the Malay message. It was in the Malay. It's called Kataraya Chita. The message goes like this. He, he brought it to Ra Raja Humabon and delivered it. Have good care, O king. What you do for these men are those who have conquered Calicut, Malacca, and all India the greater. If you give them good reception and treat them well, it will be well for you. But if you treat them ill, so much the worse it will be for you, as they have done at Calicut and at Malacca. He was born. He was a shrewd Raja. Today, he is recognized as a wise king in the plaque, what I saw in the Raja uh, Humabon monument in Cebu. He was a shrewd king. He was bidding his time. So what he did was he signed a blood treaty 
it's a practice in those parts of the Philippines at the time. Um, he signed that blood treaty with Ferdinand Magellan. It happened um, around that um, eight days before uh, April 14, 1521. On a uh, April 14, 1521, incidentally, that's the Tamil New Year, what we celebrate today in Tamil Nadu. He converted to Christianity along with 800 followers. It was done by Ferdinand Magellan. Today, he is recognized as the first Filipino to convert to Christianity. His wife, Huma May, converted as well. Huma Bon assumed the name Don Carlos. His wife assumed the name Juana. But um, the modern authors of Filipino, what they state in Huma Bon's defense, he never understood the concept, concept of uh, converting to another religion. It was new for him. He just thought it is a show of friendship. When he realized that he was taken for a ride by Megalan, he asked Megalan for help against Lapu-Lapu. So Megalan took the bait and in April 27, 1521, in the Battle of Macton, the Bacton, as I mentioned, is the modern name for Mangatan. But if you look at any, any um, articles, it will show up as Battle of Macton. He was killed by Lapu-Lapu. Hewabon just watched with the soldiers from a distance, not committing them into the battle. The remaining Spanish soldiers were poisoned by Hewabon after inviting them for a, a, a feast in the palace, in his palace. The surviving soldiers they sailed out and uh, reached Seville in Spain in 1522 with just one remaining ship out of the five which sailed with Magellan. Thus, Himabon got his revenge. Lapu Lapu too returned to his home, home place, that is Borneo. So then the history switches to 1521. Another incident happened in 1521. Before the death of Magellan, um, Sri Alho's son, um, the descendant of the Sri Alho, um, they were the Rajanate of Butuan. There is not much history um, uh, known. Uh, either um, they established the Rajanate of Butuan or taken control. The reason why I say taken control is Song Dynasty of China in the 11th century, they mentioned about Rajanate of Butuan uh, in one of their documents. And that is why I said whether established or taken control. Butuan in the, is in the region um, next to Mindanao. Uh, of course, it's in the South Mindanao. The Raja Sugbo signed a blood pact with Magellan, who annexed the kingdom to Spain. Thus, the Rajanate of Butuan ceased to exist in 1521. Raja Colombo, son of Sri Ukob, was also a part of the blood pact what happened in 1521. So the 1521 was a crucial year in the history of the uh, Philippines, as well as for the Chola lineage in Philippines. Another 44 years later, in 1565, Raja Humabon was succeeded by uh, his um, cousin, son of Sri Parang, Raja Tupas. Raja Tupas was 70 years of age at the time. So another conquistador 
or the Spanish conqueror. Miguel Lopez de Legazpi, he showed up from Spain. Raja Tupas had a battle with Legazpi on April 27, 1565. The same day, Battle of Macton happened in 1521 when Magellan lost a life. It's the same day. Raja Tupas lost the battle and he was forced to convert to Christianity. He assumed the name Felipe Tupas and became the captain of Cebu under Spain. The Rajanate of Cebu was annexed by the Spain. So that this was the end of the Rajanate of Cebu. And the, another that if you look at 1565, another Indian empire reached the sunset. That is the Vijayanagara Empire, which lost the Battle of Talikota in 1565-2. So in the same period in 1565, another incident happened. The descendant of Sri, Sri Lam Rao, he is the brother of Sri Bantung. Datu Sikatuna, a chieftain who was ruling this part, um, uh, Limasau. Limasau, and later this part here. He signed a blood pact with Legaspi. Make a note of it. I'm going to talk about the modern implication of that particular blood pact between Datu Sikatuna and Legaspi. Sorry, um, he's not uh, ruling the Limassau. He was ruling the Bohol. My, uh, my apologies. So that's, that is a monument in Bohol today. But uh, it has, um, I will talk about the history behind the monument in the last slide. So the history switches to year 61, 1621 and 1622. Two new descendants were ruling um, the Visayas region. One was Tamlot, he was ruling the Bohol. The other ones, Dr. Bankau, he was ruling that uh, Limasawa and the Leyte region. So Bohol, um, Tamlot was ruling Bohol and um, Bankau was ruling the Limasawa Leyte region. So, um, Datus, uh, Tamlot is a son of Datus Sikatuna, the Sikatuna who did the blood pact with Legaspi in 1565. Some associate Tamlot to be a Babylon. Babylon means a spiritual leader. If you understand the religion, they were practicing a mix of animus and the Hindu religions. So they had their own spiritual leader. They are called Babylon. And their gods were called Divatas. Divata is a word which is a derivative from the Sanskrit word of Devata. So um, that was the influence what we had. Sanskrit words were predominant. Singapala, Divatas, those are the words, some of the words which was influenced by the Sanskrit. So he started an uprising in um, in Bohol. As per a Catholic source written by a priest called Medina, he was writing a letter in 1530, that is like nine years later to King of Spain. Tamlot 
had a spiritual dwell with another Catholic priest. The dwell was who would convert a bamboo stalk to rice and wine. The Catholic priest failed while Tamblot succeeded. Medina calls it the work of the Satan. It's convenient. But people rallied around Tamblot. The revolt began on, uh, on the day when the Catholic priests of Bohol were in Cebo. They were celebrating the feast of the day of St. Francis, the St. Francis of Goa, of course. So um, consequently, the regional magistrate of Subbu, Don Juan D. Alcarazo, landed with 100 plus Spanish soldiers on the local native soldiers of Subbu, about, about 1,000 of them, on the new year of 1622. After six days of hiking the mountains, the Spanish force encountered Tamblot and his rebels, who fought valiantly. The arquebuses of Spaniards, the early guns, played havoc against Tamblot soldiers, but the rebels held on until most spell fell. The English translation of a snippet of Medina's letters quotes that the warriors of Tamblots fought bravely. The quote, the English translation goes like this. Consequently, they became like mad dogs and they preferred death to enduring the conditions of the conqueror. But so many fell that death had to fulfill its duty, namely to inspire them with fears. Tamblot himself might have fallen in the final stages of the uprising. Sources attribute that he was assassinated by the Catholic priest who sneaked into his camp, which made it easier for the Spanish to crush the rising. But um, this encouraged another chieftain, the Bankau, the descendant of Sri Ukob, the son of Sri Lume, to start the uprising at the age of 75 with his uh, sons. The chieftain, Bankau, was ruling the island of Limassau and a few other regions in South Leyte. He was converted to Christianity in 1565, as is the norm of the Spanish, by Miguel Lopez de Legazpi, encouraged by, the, uh, by their own Babylon spiritual leader called Pagali, he returned to his original faith, built a temple for the Divatas, and he, joined, he was joined in the rebellion by his two sons and a daughter. Alarmed at the apostasy, the regional magistrate of Sugbo, Don Juan D. Alcaraso, the same person who defeated uh, Tamlot, he came, he sailed to uh, Limassau on 40 vessels with uh, all the Spanish and Sugbu soldiers. In the ensuing battle, Bankau and one of his sons were killed. They were beheaded and their heads displayed in the pikes as a warning to the rest of the population. Another son and the daughter were sent into slavery along with the rest of the rebels. Thus ended the lineage of Sholas of Philippines. Today, I was there in Cebo um, in December of 2019 and in Bohol. Um, if you look at um, uh, the city of Cebo, they have a Humabon monument there. 
When I spoke to the locals, no one seemed to know the background of him except that he was a local chieftain who converted to Christianity. So, if you look at it, this is the plaque what they have. This is a mo monument what they have, and then if you see that on the left, that is a festival of Sinulog. The background on the on the down left below, uh, on the so that festival is called Sinulog, which is celebrated in January of every year in Cebu. So the history behind that is. Ferdinand Magellan handed over a small baby Jesus or Santo Nino statue to Juana. Juana or Juana, J is silent in Spanish. So she is called as Juana. So that is a festival which is celebrated as a carnival. That carnival matches the Brazilian carnival of Rio de Janeiro. It's very popular. That's what I heard from the people. So Lapu Lapu had Today, he has part of the Macton Island named after him. It's called Lapu Lapu City. So this is a, a Cebu and Macton. If you go to Bohol, the Bohol, as, as I mentioned previously, has a monument for the blood pact uh, done by Datu Sikatuna and Legaspi. Today, that blood pact is recognized as the first peace treaty signed, international peace treaty signed by Philippines. And Tamblot and Sikatuna, they are recognized in the, in the provincial flag of Bohol today. If you see one of the knives, the sword here, that, re, that reflects Tamblot revolt, revolt of 1621. So both the heroes of the Cholas they are recognized today and their legacy are carried even today in the island of Bohol. Before I take up the questions, I just want to credit some of the sources for the pictures what I borrowed. Thank you, everyone. I'll take up the questions now. I have my email ID plus my website and Twitter uh, information there. Um, if you want to contact um, offline for uh, any um, other topics related to this. Yeah, talking Susanji, I'll go first. Uh, so sure, it sounds yeah. like more the history of um, Philippines and the, the general region, but basically there is beyond maybe the first generation, there's hardly any um, interaction with the Cholas or mainland India in any form, except maybe remnants of Hinduism that may have carried on for a few generations. Would that be accurate to say? Uh, yes, Rahulji, you are right. Um, if you look at uh, how the Hinduism spread, it didn't spread directly from uh, India. India influenced uh, uh, regions like uh, Cambodia, modern day Cambodia, um, Vietnam and Indonesia. But the credit to the Indonesian empires of Sri Vijaya and the Majapahit Empire. The history spread from there. Hinduism spread from these countries. So that is the reason you see there is very less interaction with the Indians. That is a fascinating topic. If you look at the research, uh, Codex is a nice book, what I would recommend. It talks about the history of the Southeast Asian empires. They 
Um, it talks about how Majapahit Empire, Sri Vijayan Empire, how they influenced the Hinduism. Excellent. I wrote an article, I wrote an article, three-part article, how uh, the Java is the epitome of the Hindu legacy in those parts. It was published in Swarajya magazine. Um, so it's, a fa it's there in my blog site, both the um, yeah, English version is there under Indonesia. And I, last week I published uh, the Tamil version as well. So it is there. That's how they influenced it. Prambanan, Mount Bromo, um, the Pura Luhurpotin Brahma temple. It's fascinating if you look at the history. Maybe you can talk about that um, in some follow-up talks as well. Sure, uh, Rahulji. Thank you for the opportunity. Sure. So um, maybe one more question before I go to the audience. So do you know uh, anything about how the maybe the first generation of Cholas or maybe maybe the second generation perhaps, how were they looked upon? They married locally. Were they looked upon as... Uh, Indian origin kings who had who were there and had brought in Hinduism with them were they looked at upon what I'm trying to ask is is the relationship or like the Mughals to us for example they stayed on is that the relationship of invaders who stayed on or was it was it a relationship of of people who may have come via an invasion or cultural influence or however but basically they were locals so uh, Rahulji, that's an interesting uh, point what you brought up. So what happened was Spanish and um, especially the Portuguese and the Spanish, we know the history very well. They, they destroyed what are the pre-colonial texts, uh, uh, which was written in pandan leaves. That's, how, that's what they have written in. In India, you, we used to write it in palm leaves. They were writing in pandan leaves. They destroyed all this particular um, uh, um, disc, uh, or, uh, the particular leaves or the hierographs. So what happened was today the Filipinos, they think of um, that uh, Humabon and others as some native, some locals. Um, they don't uh, understand that he has a Hindu background. But what happens is the good thing about Filipinos, what I noticed was they um, don't. Um, they don't like uh, Spanish. They recognize the local locals a lot. The valor of the locals a lot. For example, I went to buy a small um, some um, something about Raja Humabon to the mall out there. And uh, I traveled to different places to buy a memento of Raja Humabon. I couldn't find anything because. They think he surrendered himself to the invaders. Whereas Lapu-Lapu, I got a memento of Lapu-Lapu. It is there everywhere. He has a statue even in the city of Cebu. He has the mementos available in different shops out there in Cebu. So that is a distinction what they are making. The background behind my story, it was written in 1952 from a Pandan scripture, which was written in 1565. So in it, they ha the writer does not have a glorious view of um, either the religion, that is a modern religion, or the invaders. So that's fascinating. 
So um, they, that's the distinction what the Filipinos make, just like in India. In India, right, we, treat, uh, we think of Mughals as invaders. Filipinos think of uh, Spanish as the same way. And they've lost their entire language. I've got a chance to be in multiple times in Philippines for work. And uh, very interestingly, uh, just a few years back, if I'm not wrong, about four or five years back, a fisherman discovered a copper plate with their pre-Spanish uh, language, the written language. And I had, I had seen, happened to see a picture of it. It, to be honest, felt like a very strong Sanskrit or a Devanagari or I don't know, some Indian influence on how they were all writing. So you didn't uh, make, you, you are true, Rahulji, if you are true. Because the modern Filipino language, it, um, it, it came from Tagalog. Tagalog is spoken by the northern people in the northern Philippines. That is influenced by Sanskrit. That is you are right. Exactly. Yeah. So, but now the scripture, right? right it changed the Latino alphabets. It's all changed. But many of the words, it's similar to the Sanskrit. Yeah. Sad situation is that, um, you know, the young generation, I was in one of their metros in, um, in Manila, and I happened to talk to just a stranger. And I generally started chatting and I asked him that, um, you know, what was your language before the current script? And he had a blank look and a shock look on his face. He said, I've never thought about it. <laughs> I must go back and look at my own history of what it was before the Spanish and why do we write in the Latin script. So that's also the other side. They're so Christianized, completely deracinated, culturally uprooted from their own civilization is the feeling that I sort of got multiple times in, in Philippines. But uh, they are nationalists, uh, Rahulji. That's one point which I want to uh, make it. They uh, Today they revered all the natives who fought against the Spanish and who uh, got rid of their own culture. Just like if you visit um, uh, Belize or Guatemala um, near to the um, uh, Flores Petain in Guatemala and those places, they revere the natives, the Mayans, like uh, how the Mayan descendants they do. Um, Filipinos do the same. They lost their, yeah, they lost their um, legacy of the India, Indian legacy. But uh, having said that, they still revere their um, old own natives who fought her bravely. Excellent. That's very, very nice to hear. Um, so while there's only one hand, if there are more questions going up, I'll sort of continue here. If you don't mind, uh, you know, the participants a little bit. So one myth you've busted today is that, uh, you know, we keep repeating the same message that Indians never invaded any foreign land. So you sort of busted that. The Cholas did invade. Was it an invasion? So the reason I'm asking is that Sanjeev Sanyal in his book, The Land of Seven Rivers, talks about uh, the, uh, you know, the movement of uh, Chola Navy against the Sri Vijaya Empire when they had blocked the trade routes with China. And so it was, uh, Sanjeev writes that it was a surrender without a single arrow being shot or, you know, nothing, uh, no, no uh, 
war at all it was simply a movement of chola navies and it was so intimidating that the sri vijaya empire sort of gave in and opened the trade routes it was sort of taxation but you're now also saying not only sri vijaya but you know down in the in what is current malaysia you're actually saying the chola navy invaded so, so that- uh- there is a art uh, there is a painting um, i i don't know what the year the painting was done i saw that keda uh, painting about cholas attacking the keda um, i don't know the year i uh, i lost that but uh, this is i looked at different sources as i was researching the cholas um, uh, they all point to the uh, invasion uh, maybe he was saying not a single arrow was shot the reason maybe um, then sri vijayan navy was um protecting the uh, asse the northern part of sumatra and kedah and uh, protecting the strait of malacca whereas cholas sailed into barus which is not the normal route what uh, the navies were taking at the time or the merchant ships were taking at the time and sailed through the strait of sunda maybe they never had anyone protecting the strait of sunda that might be the reason uh, thank you for a very informative lecture uh, i just have a couple of uh, questions one, one simple question is what is this blood compact that you talked about and uh, secondly uh, what were the actual reasons for the chora navy to go so far afield you know uh, by uh, going beyond even indonesia all the way to the philippines and uh, do we have any uh, a chora account of these expeditions um the chola account um uh, the the copper inscriptions i'm trying to remember that uh, a copper inscription it talks about the uh, the naval expedition it talks about the different places um tiruvalangadu um, copper plates there are, they published it um partly in tamil and then the sanskrit version is published in 1025 um probably after the invasion happened uh, so they talk about the different places um, uh, um they talk about islands of nicobar as well they talk about uh, different places um they it's mentioned in the uh, tamilized version uh, the tamil version so right. it is mentioned in the tiruvallangadu seppu Uh, the copper plate seppu is the copper in uh, tamil tiruvallangadu uh, copper plate it's mentioned uh, but having said that um there if you look at uh, the thing the cholas did not go from uh, sri vijaya uh, to philippines philippines is far off after rajendra chola and during the kulothunga period the naval capabilities made the bay of bengal the local backyard for the cholas so the kings the 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 prince and the descendants the chola prince who married the sri vijaya princesses they settled there and their descendants were settling there um they settled there for example even kulothunga right the emperor who took uh, reigns in 1070 he is not from um the tanjur um uh, he is from his mother's side who is a bengi princess Uh, she was uh, uh, no his father was a vengi prince um who was a king later on who ruled that vengi is the part around the krishna godavari districts in andhra so he was not from tamil dynasty 
if you look at Kulotunga, likewise, many of these Sumatran princes were the Chola descendants, the Chola princes who settled there. And one of the Sri Lume is the descendant of one of these lineage. So he undertook the uh, invasion. In 1279, right, the Chola, uh, Cholas were not a power in Tamil Nadu. They, the history is gone. This happened 150 years later. So there is no direct invasion from India or uh, Tamil Nadu to Philippines. To, uh, and the other question, to answer your question, um, so um, uh, as I mentioned, right, um, someone tweeted, I forgot the name, uh, he tweeted about the Telugu Cholas and other Chola descendants. So they were all spread. Cholas was not a single dynasty. They were spread all over India, as well as um, in Malai, uh, in Sumatra. Uh, so does that answer your question, Ra Ramakrishnan Ji? So thank you for your wonderful presentation, sir and sir. Sir, I had a question. Can you provide some details on the origin of Sri Vijaya Empire? I don't have the background. Um, um, that's something... Um, we can take up as a separate topic. We, have, um, we can take it up as a separate topic. Um, I have been doing the research, but I haven't gone to the, the origins of the Sri Vijaya kingdom. Most likely because they were mentioned uh, even um, as early as a third or fourth um, common era, fourth century common era. Most likely they, um, they were influenced by the Kalingas. Um, so I might be wrong, but what I can do is I can take up the question and I can um, uh, tweet about it. Uh, uh, sorry, um, I didn't answer. Ramakrishna Ji, I didn't answer your question around the blood compact. Yeah, I, I lost that. Let me answer it for you. So that is what is called Sandugon uh, or Sandubon. Um, uh, that is a um, term what the Filipinos use to do a kind of like blood compact. They cut each other's fingers and uh, they uh, uh, pour the blood um, into uh, some liquid and they drink it. That's the blood compact. That's a tradition practice. The local Filipino term is Sandborn or Sandagon. Um, yeah, Sandagon, that's the term. Uh, thank you for your uh, lecture, sir. I mean, uh, it was very much, uh, uh, it's uh, throwing light on new aspects of uh, the Chola Empire. I had one question that is, uh, uh, we have been, uh, I, have, I mean, we, we have grown listening to the uh, statement that the Maratha Navy was the first Navy in India. So how would you react to this uh, uh, conception of us, whether it is a misconception or whether it is right or wrong? Can you throw light on this? And why, uh, if, if it is a misconception, then why uh, this remained as a misconception? Why it was not brought to the fore? Uh, so that's my question, sir. Uh, uh, thank you, sir. Um, if you look at the history, right? Our history, um, it needs to be rewritten. Frankly, that's what it is, right? Even Marathas. Uh, the valor of the Marathas is recognized uh, um, today. We recognize it. If you look at the Mughal history, it started around 1526. By 1730s, Mughals were confined to Delhi. They were liter literally mayors of Delhi. And then the Marathas, they were the major power which ruled till 1812. 1812, they lost that uh, um, uh, battle with uh, the British. The power um, um, vanished. So um, that is a kind of the history as well. It is hidden. But uh, uh, if you look at uh, the, Cho the Chola Navy themselves, uh, they had um, uh, battleships with marines and uh, 
separate practice area for the marines i know after i spoke to rahul ji he wanted uh, me to talk about the ships used by the cholas so i started with the early cholas where they use three different ships including the modern the term english term called uh, the, the the katumaram or catamaran if you see the term katumaram is the tamil word the catamaran finds it or finds its origins from that and then there are two other ships which are like 50 meters in length that's a major one and the second one uh, was a smaller one but um, when i looked at the uh, the chola fleet they had like nine chola fleet in the peak um, about like 2000 plus ships um, um in different ports uh, nagapattinam is the major port uh, then they had kollam or koilan koilan is what they conquered in um, um 1018 when they conquered the ports of uh, kerala and then uh, they had a port uh, the port they used the ports in kadalur near pondicherry they used that port as well so um that is a, um, uh, so um rahul ji if you uh, if you uh, don't mind maybe that will be a separate topic because i was doing the research i came across fascinating um uh, history they had literally uh, cattle and goats on board to feed them uh, milk and the curd and they had a uh, huge storages of um, to store fresh water in the ships as they sailed when you see the map what i drew the navy went with the land, uh, land uh, the, the 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 infantry and the cavalry as well uh, because it was providing the supplies it was a additional support that's why i drew the two lines when it went to palas and the um, kalingas so yogesh ji uh, does this answer your question uh, i visited tanjavur brahadeshwar temple and i was fascinated by that architecture marvelous architecture where today's engineering cannot meet that so my question is i was i mean i i got to know not sure but got to know the top the top rock is one rock actually that go from the top yeah. one yes how did how did the engineering of that time you know how was it that uh, that they were able to take that rock on to the top there and place it i mean we did not have those mechanisms of today's engineering mechanisms what we have so how did that happen i am not i'm i'm sure it cannot be even carried by just men and kept no, he, because it's a huge no. rock yeah it is it is my my understanding is they they built a plane uh, a, a, a slanting plane all the way to the top uh, that's my understanding i i don't know how they built it um, unfortunately rajesh ji okay Sir, and know. one yeah. more question may i ask sure, you please your sure, respect yeah. yes uh, we we also mentioned now about 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 kalinga so was it the time of ashoka that chola was chola dynasty was prevalent or was it after that ashoka came chola rock edict uh, sorry um, the ashoka rock edict 13 in the 3rd century before common era mentions about the cholas of uh, tamilagam the first sign so cholas might might have been there even before that before that period 3rd century before common era so that, uh, they were there cholas were living there yeah Thank and uh, that uh, that uh, that one fascinating thing which i want to mention about jambukeshwara temple right the kulothunga is one of the, sorry um the kochenga chola is one of the nine marks today 
Um, the thing is, they talk about uh, big temple. I would say people to visit big temple, but Jambukeshwara temple, the outer pragaram or the, uh, the corridor, the walls of the, uh, the temple, they say it's built by Lord Shiva. So it's huge. It is 1800 years plus. So I would suggest um, um, everyone to visit if you get a chance, if you are in that region. Parikshitji and yeah, they're asking that you mentioned Codex as one of the important books. Are there more books that you may want to tell the audience uh, about here? Uh, uh, yes. Um, Codex is one of them. Um, what I can do is I can, um, there is another one, uh, the Aginid, the source for my whole um, uh, history. Uh, it was written in 1952 by um, uh, Jovito Abilena. He wrote, he wrote it in um, uh, the Bebeyan script with the English. In, he provided both. The, uh, let me pull up the particular slide. So it, if you see that. Um, um, so um, it was written in two different scriptures. One is the Bebeyan, which has that uh, Brahmi uh, scripture as the base, and other one is the Latin words. He was using the Latin alphabets. Um, but uh, I can recommend more books. What I can do is I can post it here. Um, the Aginit translation is another one, what I would uh, refer to. Um, and then uh, there are, um, I have it in the library uh, on the Kindle as well. What, I, what I'll do is I'll compile some of the books, what I can um, suggest, and I'll post it in the Twitter. I'll copy Sangam Talks as well. I'll post it in the Twitter. You, you just mentioned during one of your answers that uh, the Bay of Bengal was like the backyard for Cholas. Okay. But what has always surprised me is that uh, we don't have any Chola outposts on the Andaman and Nicobar Islands. It should be the first logical stop while going to the Straits of Malacca. I mean, is there any reason why this happened or is it just bypassed? Um, uh, Ramakrishna ji, you are right. I, I, I simply um, made it easier to show the route. But always, um, there was a, um, uh, the island of Nicobar, one of the islands is a major outpost for the Cholas. But there was a Chola outpost. It's a very important outpost in Nicobar because I was always asking the question, why did Indian Navy took a while to develop the port of Cambay in Nicobar? while Cholas always knew that Nicobar is an outpost which they can leverage before they attack um, any of the Indonesian or Malaysian regions. I can share the Indian name. There is a Tamil name for it as well. Uh, it is mentioned in Tamil, uh, that uh, particular Nicobar island, which was an outpost for the Cholas. I made the route simple for multimedia reasons. If you look at the, the arrows, I would have sailed through the Nicobar. I didn't um, put a stop or anything there.